Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Uh, This is Brandon, and today I'll be going through the intro for today's episode, uh, where we'll be talking with two different doctors at the VA who study and treat uh, mental health disorders here in Iowa City. Our our first guest is Dr. Carolyn Turvey, and she joins us today to talk about her studies with functional impairment and depression in veterans. So veterans who have lost a limb or really functionally impaired. And she really goes into detail about uh, about depression that's paired with functional impairment and how veterans can overcome this. Um, She really discusses how routines are important, which really makes sense to me, and how we all have them and establishing routines uh, can be key to combating this depression. She's very informative and I hope you enjoy. Uh, Our second guest is Dr. Ann Sadler. She's a marital and family therapist here at the Iowa City VA. And she does research on suicide risk in veterans. With Dr. Sadler, we just discuss suicide risks, factors that contribute to suicide, and really facts about about suicide in the veteran population that we didn't really know, and we hope they're informative to you. She highlights increased risk for women veterans and um, really goes into detail how different types of uh, military deployment can introduce different types of stressors that potentially could lead to suicide. Um, And in particular, the suicide rate for veterans is one and a half times higher than that of the general population. And the rate of suicide among female veterans when compared to non-veteran adult women is two and a half times greater than that. And suicide rates uh, also for older veterans um, uh, are much higher. In 2016, uh, about 58% of all veteran suicides were among veterans that were 55 years or older. And about 20 veterans commit suicide a day, and nearly three quarters of them are not under VA care. Uh, We learned that the rate of suicide among veterans who receive recent VA care uh, is decreased by 2.4%. And I think it's really illustrated between Dr. Sadler and Dr. Turvey what the VA is doing in terms of research and care and uh, providing for veterans who are, who are struggling. And we include in our intro or in our uh, a blog uh, uh, relevant links uh, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts uh, or are just struggling in general. We hope this information finds you well and thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Today we have Dr. Carolyn Turvey, who is a professor at the University of Iowa and the Director of Veterans Rural Health at the Iowa City VA. She's also a member of the Center for Access and Delivery Research and Evaluation, uh, or otherwise known as CADRE, here at the Iowa City VA. At the Iowa City VA, Dr. Turvey uh, studies functional impairment and depression. Before we get going into the the meat of the research. Where, where did you grow up and, and how did you come to be a researcher at the VA? So I grew up in the suburbs of New York City in New Jersey and in Connecticut and I went to school and graduate school on the East Coast. I came to Iowa City uh, as the trailing spouse of a student in the Iowa Writers Workshop but we came here and 
had some pretty strong beliefs about quality of life and the amount of daily hassle factors we wanted to cope with, so we stayed. And we've been here since 1996. I now have lived in Iowa more than I, longer than I have lived anywhere else. Uh, but so that's how I'm here. I started working at the VA, and this is related to my research, because studying functional impairment and depression and functional impairment quickly leads to telemedicine and e-health. And the VA, as it's a national healthcare system, had at the time the more established telemedicine and e-health infrastructure. Now, other places are catching up with that because of COVID, but still the VA is one of the best places, if not the best place in the United States to study innovations in telemedicine and e-health. Oh, very neat. So where, where did you go to college at? You said that you- I went to the University of Connecticut, go Huskies. And oh, then I got nice. my graduate, graduate degree at Yale. And I cannot even tell you if Yale has a football team. I think it must. It does, the, Yale has a football team. Yale has a I've never gone to that game. Um, so either way, but I do, um, I, I come from a family that are on a first name basis with many women's basketball teams. So uh, that's, that's what UConn is known for is it's yes. winning its basketball team. And that's what, what we, talk about as far as sports. Not not as much of a focus in Iowa, but in, in Connecticut you can't you can't escape the the women huskies. Mm -hmm. So you joined you, you joined the VA because of the tele, telemedicine. Is that really like what really drove you towards the VA when you came to Iowa City? Um, I think telemedicine is extremely important for veterans um, and something that I would love to talk about in the future. But you know why is it important for you to do research or, or to work with veterans? Well, with uh, veterans, I feel that they have this kind of unique mental health need related to depression and anxiety, but also very much related to PTSD. And so I found that it was interesting to look at the combination of PTSD and depression and how to develop treatments to effectively address depression that accounted for some of the anxiety and trauma issues. The other thing is related more to the cohort. I was interested in COPD and heart failure and depression and COPD and heart failure. So COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and heart failure is basically the, the end point to many cardiac illnesses, it's when your heart doesn't pump enough needs, uh, enough blood to meet the needs of your body. Um, and both of those are chronic disabling illnesses. They're also highly prevalent in veterans. Uh, it's the, uh, the older veterans, the World War II and the Vietnam War veterans have a lot of these chronic illnesses that also lead to functional impairment. And so that made me interested in coming over to the VA. Would you say, since you got started at the VA to now, would you say that the rate of depression has been steady? Has it been increasing has it, or has it been decreasing at all? Well, the data does show that the 
later cohorts, OIF, OEF, and OND, have higher rates of depression and, of course, tragically, suicidality. Mm -hmm. They also have higher rates of PTSD. So I would say that that has been increasing. I do think the VA is doing everything it can to screen and treat these disorders, but that the rates are still quite high in the later cohorts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, uh, functional impairment, you look at it from um, sort of heart failure and, and um, the other, the other, what was the other thing you mentioned? I totally. Pulmonary, pulmonary disease, chronic pulmonary yeah. disease. Like COPD. And, mm -hmm. But like, you know, functional impairment can be any multitude of things like mental health and um, a loss of a limb. How do those compare, would you say, to things like COPD? Are, are, is it all similar for a veteran or is it, I'm sure it's very dependent upon the veteran themselves. It is, it's dependent upon the veteran. There, there are similarities in that each type of impairment keeps you from doing things that you enjoy, from having meaningful routines that are important to you, and from doing activities that bring meaning to your life. Uh, this is an interesting discussion to occur during COVID because I think people, even if they're not functionally impaired, have been faced with this challenge of being cut off from doing things they enjoy, doing things they find meaningful, and then having regular routines. But those are three things that I really focus on in that the loss of those can either lead to a depressed, depressive episode, or if you're depressed, it makes it much harder for you to recover. So everything that you mentioned, certainly uh, loss of a limb or some of the musculoskeletal impairment injuries that people incur due to combat or IED blasts or things like that, that will definitely lead to a transition period. And that transition period might be noted by depression. The main difference between that and what I study, but both, both are important and both are significant, is that most often people have a transition period with some of those other types of impairment and then they're expected to get some improvement in their functioning. So there's a, a bit more of hopefulness. And even though they may not go back to the way that they were before they uh, entered into combat, they will regain some function, regain some connection to what they used to do. I tend to focus on older individuals where their trajectory for impairment is that they're impaired now, and it won't be a straight line, but in general, over the course of the next year, next five years, they'll become more and more impaired. And so there, that's a challenge in helping them to come to terms with not judging themselves and not being so harsh on themselves for not being able to do what they used to do and also to organize and structure their life in a way that is realistic, but still has goals, still has routine, still has uh, meaningful activities, but is in consistent with what they are able to do without exhausting themselves. So I can understand how having goals are important, um, but what, why are routines important for mental health? What is it about routines that give us better mental health status, if you will? I'm not sure how to ask that question, but I, I have to, I'm going to have, I think we're entering the land of philosophy. I, I yeah, do, sure. I, 
Although I do think that there's data showing that regular routines are helpful for mental health. Now, somebody's going to say, but my friend Joe from college never had a routine and he was the happiest person. Course, there's obviously yeah. Yeah. There's individual <laughs> variability um, in this regard. But I see depression in its essence. I mean, I think depression has a lot of different ways of presenting and of being, but I see it as a disorder of motivation. You just lose motivation to do things. And, and it's tinged with self-reproach and hopelessness. But I, I think that at, it, at its heart, depression is some biological or biological and psychological disruption in your ability to motivate yourself. When you have structure and routine in place, getting up and being active is less dependent on your own inherent motivation. It, it, it is just there, you do it, you kind of have it in your routine. And so that protects you some when low mood hits from kind of spiraling and just sitting on the couch and not engaging with things. Whereas if you uh, have some routine in place and you keep on doing it, even though you might have low mood, you might then re-engage and that will improve your mood. I think most people, especially in this past year, can recall a time where they woke up and they're like, oh, you know, why? Why get out of bed? Why do this? And then they get up and they either go to work or they go out and about and they're like, gosh, that was a dark moment. <laughs> That's, boy, that was weird. So routines keep you from really sinking into those dark moments when they do occur and they occur to everybody. Yeah. Um, but in general, if you're, if you're suffering from depression, the routines just give you a little bit extra structure. So you get up, you get out of bed, you connect with people and you start getting some of that positive reinforcement and uh, that can help improve your mood. You just made me think about, uh, maybe I need to look at my cat that sings 15 minutes before the alarm every day to be fed as a <laughs> more of a routine structure. And maybe I should give the cat a little more credence during COVID here <laughs> rather than annoyance. <laughs> We have a, I have a similar cat. He just sits on my head, so, you know. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, you know it's, I, I find it interesting talking about routines because, you know, everyone, well, most everyone's routines have been totally upended by COVID, mm -hmm. and I can totally relate to that. It, it, was, it was weird when all of a sudden school didn't exist for my children, and I had to not go to work for months at, for, you know, I was working in my basement, and so it, my routine totally changed, and, and it got difficult to, like, get up and be motivated to actually like sit down and do work every day. And so I totally relate to some extent, not completely, but uh, to that with COVID going on. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so what, what is the focus of, what is the main focus of your research as of late? Well, let me talk to you a little bit about the, the research related, relating to depression and uh, functional impairment. And really yeah. that, research was, uh, we, first off, I think that people would start to feel depressed when they had heart failure or COPD. And they wouldn't think that it was depression. They thought they were just kind of realistically assessing how bad their life is. They're like, I'm not depressed. I just have a lousy life. But little by little, the depression would seep in. And 
It's important to note that most people who have these chronic illnesses don't experience depression. They may have what we call an adjustment period when they have a downturn in their health. Or one thing that particularly bothers people is if they have like two hospitalizations that occur close together, it just feels like their, their uh, stride is getting hit. But usually people adjust and they get back to somewhere around their normal mood. But for some people, they start to feel depressed after the um, impairment sets in and they just don't recover and they get more and more depressed. And for those people, I first talk with them just about this being a period of transition, that they need to readjust their expectations about what they can do themselves and what um, they may need help with. And for a lot of people, part of why they're depressed is they're just seeing themselves as lazy because they're not doing what they used to do. Um, and, you know, in Iowa, I've worked sometimes with farmers who were really pretty sick saying, you know, I used to be able to take a bale and throw it up on the second level of some storage facility. And of course, I'm like, why would you feel the need to do that? Why would that be uh, your standard for really contributing in life? But that was their role. And that was very important to them. And they felt guilty and bad about themselves that they couldn't do it, that somehow they should just be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps uh, and do that. In particular with COPD and heart failure, the illnesses are not very visible. Uh, you, don't, you might notice people are breathless, but otherwise it's not as visible as something like the loss of a limb or some, something where a person has to use a cane. So we talked a lot about having more realistic expectations and taking the illness seriously. The next thing we talked about was developing new activities that are consistent with what they are currently able to do so that they don't keep on exhausting themselves. And then there was a lot of focus on their relationships with people, other people, and having to ask for help from other people. In general, I believe with a lot of older veterans, they were not only used to, but it was very much a part of their lives that they would get help from their spouse. Um, I, I think we must, you must know this. I mean, veterans and their spouses are just a very tight yes. uh, unit. <laughs> no, that's something um, we've definitely, um, from, from interviewing veterans mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of this podcast, caretakers and, and their spouses, uh, caretakers or spouses are very closely connected to the veteran themselves. It's, it's really interesting. But they hate asking favors of their children. Oh. And often that was needed. And so we talked a lot about having conversations with their kids and, uh, you know, payback time. And, you know, kids may not know that you need help. Like they may not know that you need help managing the lawn. Or they might not be suggesting things because they don't want to hurt your pride. Um, it's also possible that the kids are just being irresponsible, so there's that. But I have to say, most of the time, once we talked with veterans about feeling more comfortable asking for help from their kids, um, the, the kids would respond positively and really were just trying to be respectful of their parents' own autonomy. So we would focus on those three things and trying to help improve veterans' mood. Interesting. So um, I'm going to have Brandon ask the next question, actually. Like, where do you see your research going? Basically, it's kind of <clears throat> yeah. 
I was just thinking about how uh, you're talking about the farmer story. I'll, I'll ask that question in a second. Yeah. Um, my grandpa's had two open heart surgeries. He's not a veteran, but he's also one of those farmers. I grew up fairly rural and uh, he's had to make those adjustments. And he used to stack um, 2000 pounds of feed and 50 pound feed sacks uh, every week. And um, he still is super active as a farmer. And he accredits that with like keeping him going. Like he, he would say how he'd see some of his peers who just, became immobile or didn't do anything and they just kind of wither away. So uh, that, that uh, what you're describing there, like hit home really hard. I thought that was pretty good. Well, I, you know, just so long as he, and it sounds like he does, he kind of picks and chooses what he, what he does. And it is true that, you know, you can, within a certain range, you can choose to function certain ways, but you know, I, what we would talk about a lot would be what, what was that range for you? Mm -hmm. One thing that I saw happen that I thought was very discouraging for people is they, they'd wake up and say, okay, this is the day I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And they go out and they do something like that. And then they would be wiped out for three days afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really talked about what can you do in a day where you could do it the next day or, or in two days or things like that. So, so what could they do consistently? Yeah, that's, that, that, that makes me think of, my dad, who's uh, had five back surgeries, he's he's very disabled, and um, he would do that when he was a little bit when he was younger. He can't do it now, but when he was in his fifties and still in a lot of pain, he would like be really active for a day, and then just be out for three or four days, um, which is. I always was like, Dad, that's really foolish. Don't do that. But it, to him, it was like a sense of pride. It was weird. It was interesting, but I, you know, this this brings me to the point of. Uh, and before Brandon asks that, that question, it's important for people to have purpose. And, and I think sometimes I can get lost when you get injured or have uh, heart disease. Is, it's, it's about realigning that goal. Is, is that kind of where you're going with this? Is coming up with new goals or, or goals that are, I don't want to say easier, but more attainable? attainable? Yeah. Well, um, and I'm going to be candid about this. So we would try to get goals away from what you do, uh, where your oh, purpose is not defined by what you do, but who you are. Um, oh, cool. and I have to say the reason I'm being candid is I could talk a good game about that and the people that I worked with could talk a good game about that. But for many of them, I felt that they still had deep in their, in their heart and in their souls that my self-worth is what I do. They just, they can't see it. Whereas if you talk to like family members, your uncle or your father, you just value them because you value them and they're fun and they're nice and they're, you want them around and they're enjoyable. You don't need them to stack seed for you. You don't need them to, to do these things for you. So I would try to talk to people about uh, the value of their role in their family, their role with grandchildren. Um, and I think that they all saw it, but there were some that just felt like that was lip service and now I need to get back to hunting or farming or things like that. So that was, that was really hard. People's concept of themselves as doers um, was a lot uh, very embedded and very hard to kind of, uh, kind of rhetorically argue around and say, but no, it's, you just have this inherent self-worth. But really, I tried to just focus on their uh, role within the family and also this idea of it's their turn. You know, it's your turn. You, you worked hard like this all your life. Uh, 
you know, why don't you let the younger generations kind of come up the ranks and get them to be doing things. And uh, so it's your turn to relax. And they could definitely see that for other people. They're like, oh yeah, sure. You know, my wife should take it easier. My brother should take it easy. But for themselves, they would often still go back to, I am what I can contribute either physically or through work or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dr. Turvey, where do you see your research going from here? My area of research now, one of the things when I talked about with telemedicine was that I would do that intervention either through video or telephone. I actually did most of it through telephone because video was not as up and running as it is now. But also part of my research was looking at um, patient portals and My Healthy Vet and ways of defining recovery within healthcare. So I'm, I have a number of lines of research right now, but the one that's most consistent with this prior area is related to helping clinicians measure functioning in addition to symptoms in mental health treatments as a way of looking at the effectiveness of their treatments. So many people will go into uh, treatment for mental health care and patients will think, well, I would like to be able to do X, Y, and Z once my depression is over. Whereas the clinician may be focused on, we're gonna reduce depressive symptoms. And I don't mean to be so concrete because I think clinicians in particular VA clinicians look at functioning also but I'm looking at kind of a technical aspect where we actually measure people's self-report of functioning um, as they go into treatment so that we can gauge whether or not, not only are we treating the symptoms of the illness, but veterans are starting to meet the goals that they set as far as functioning or other life goals. Because those are kind of what's important to veterans. And then if they have goals that aren't being treated by the treatment, at least that's acknowledged. I think sometimes there are veterans who go in and say, or patients that go in and say, you know, this, this treatment isn't working, but part of it is that they're expecting the treatment will do for them something that the treatment isn't really even designed to do. But I do think most clinicians would like veterans to not only have improved mental health as far as reduction of PTSD or um, depressive symptoms, but combine that with also better quality of life and better all-around functioning. So I'm, I'm really just doing research on what, what measures would we use to measure functioning? Um, how do you collect that systematically and how do patients and providers talk about that when they're evaluating treatments? Um, by functioning, do you do you mean like everyday living, like I can get up and get myself out of bed and um, have coffee with my wife or my husband or what, what, what exactly is functioning, I guess? So that's a great question and that's part of what we're researching is okay. what, and with the gold standard being what aspect of functioning is most important to patients when they're in, when they're getting treatment for mental health problems and want their life to be better. So, um, for so for example, uh, there have been domains where they're, they're identifying domains, and one is the interpersonal domain, 
are you functioning well socially? Are, are you getting into arguments? Do you have enough social support? Do you have enough social contact? So that's one domain of functioning. Then there's just activities of daily living, like you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, eating, uh, sleeping, balancing a checkbook, things like that. And then um, there's just quality of life. You feel like there's a sense of purpose in your life. Uh, you feel uh, satisfied with your life. So we're trying to figure out which of those domains are most important to patients when thinking about treatments, and then uh, how do we measure that along with measuring symptoms so that it can be a part of a focus of treatment. Very cool. Um, this has been a wonderful interview. I, um, <laughs> you're, like, you're like exactly what I wanted for this particular interview. This is awesome. So thank you so much. Um, you know, one thing I would like to, I think we're pretty much, is there anything other topic you'd like to touch on before we like wrap up, I guess? Okay, cool. Do you have any hobbies or anything extra that you enjoy doing outside of research? Uh, well, I am a huge crafter. If you can see here, these are my looms. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, very cool. Yeah. And uh, I'm very lucky in that way because for one thing, to weave, you have to have a lot of space. And in Iowa, space is not as so much a premium we have the craft guild and these are people who are very patient with someone who takes a long time to learn these things so weaving and uh knitting not so much sewing i very much admire sewers it's not a sewing is not easy um it's a <laughs> yeah. very very specific skill so but weaving and knitting and things like that are my hobbies awesome awesome all right well thanks so much again for your time and uh i look forward to talking to you in the future Okay, let's hear it for your cat. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> awesome. Great meeting you. And next we talk with Dr. Ann Sadler, who is a marital and family therapist at the Iowa City VA, as well as a researcher with the Health Services Research Department. Uh, notably, we make the correction at the beginning of our discussion where we accidentally say Health Sciences Research Department. The first thing I always really like to ask people when they come on the podcast, especially researchers, is where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And how did you get into what you do? How did you become a marital family therapist? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, my background started in nursing and I grew up and did most of my undergraduate and master's degree uh, in Virginia. My first job in nursing was at a VA medical center in neurology and neurosurgery. And there I saw pretty substantial uh, adverse health impacts of, all right, I started my, I grew up in Virginia uh, and uh, in a rural area. So that explains some of my gravitation to rural health research. Um, but I also did um, my nurse's training, which was my first career was in nursing uh, in Norfolk, Virginia and rotated through several uh, Navy clinics and hospitals, Portsmouth Naval Hospital, for example. And there I saw firsthand the consequences of deployment, combat, and military service on the health and well being of military members. Um, consequently, I completed a, a master's degree, PhD in Maryland Family Therapy. Um, uh, I worked as a nurse in a VA 
in which I um, worked with neuro and neurosurgery patients. So TBI is a very uh, cogent part of the research that we consider in terms of risk factors yeah. for health outcomes and compliance. Um, we um, moved to Iowa because it's a great place to be, uh, great educational systems. Uh, and I immediately in my PhD program in Maryland Family Therapy did rotations at the VA Medical Center in Iowa City and really became engaged in the impact of uh, military service and trauma exposures on families. Um, uh, I went back and did a postdoc in psychiatric epidemiology because uh, understanding the epidemiology of risk and health outcomes is really vital to our being able to do treatment that is centered on the etiologies or the reasons that people have mental health consequences. Sure, and, um, and, and so can I, can I interrupt you for a second? Sure. So why did you go and get a PhD? Most, most therapists don't get PhDs. So why did you pursue a PhD over a master's degree, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, I did get a master's degree in psychiatric nursing. Yeah. <laughs> and so what I found was that I really gravitated to research. Okay. And with master's programs, they provide excellent skills training for clinical services. But in the programs that I trained in, research skills were not as heavily emphasized. Okay. And so I went back to get a PhD to learn research skills. And that's also why I gravitated to a postdoctoral epidemiology program, psychiatric epidemiology program, so I could learn better research skills. I funded my education by working for drug companies doing drug studies uh, uh, and um, the rigor that drug companies have to use when they're investigating medications really taught me um, about the importance of um, um, consistency and ethical conduct and research and it, I recognized the important work that could be done if I learned research skills. That's really cool. It sounds like you really have a love for research. <laughs> I guess I, I guess I do. Yeah, that's I think what's, what's, what's humorous is I, in my postdoc, I got tired of working with large data sets uh -huh. uh, and I decided I wanted to go back to clinical work. And so I was hired at the VA mostly because of my interest in women's health research uh, and my clinical work in women's health. And when I got to the VA, I found that um, we were seeing such high rates of sexual violence, such um, significant health consequences of trauma exposures, such as combat in women veterans, that, that I went to the literature to try to better understand it, and there was no literature. Hmm. So one of my patients said to me one day, didn't you go to do, learn research? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, why aren't you using your research to help us? So I ended up, that's how I ended up back in research is that within a full-time clinical job, I began to submit grants and I luckily got funded. Oh, very cool. So um, do you have a question? I was going to ask, uh, particularly for myself and maybe for our listeners, um, uh, what is epidemiology? Epidemiology is understanding the etiology or the origins of diseases and the prevalence rates of diseases. It's the pattern of diseases that we find in different populations, why they're caused and um, how they spread and how they're treated. Very cool.
one of the reasons we really wanted to get you on here today is uh, this season we're focusing on on suicide prevention and, and and I know that you do a little bit of work in that area. Could you talk a little bit about suicide in veterans and the risk factors that could go into that? Is that something you're comfortable dis discussing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, our work is funded by the Office of Rural Health. Yeah. Um, and rural health is um, very interested in looking at care needs and care disparities in either um, health factors or in access to care for veterans and then trying to figure out ways to address those disparities so that we meet the needs of rural veterans. Um, so our work is trying to address if there are unique risk factors for suicide and reserve and National Guard women. Mm -hmm. um, this work um, arose from work we have been doing in terms of looking at the post-deployment mental health and health consequences of reserve and National Guard and active component who deployed and how they readjust home. And what we're finding is that um, women are particularly high um, at high risk uh, for suicide. Um, um, we know that suicide rates are higher in rural women than in urban women, but uh, suicide rates in women veterans are almost double the rates of suicide in civilian women. Wow, jeez. Um, so that's really concerning. So this work arose from our other work looking at post-deployment readjustment in women veterans. We're finding that women, and particularly reserve and National Guard women who've been deployed, have um, elevated rates of mental health consequences associated with deployment. Um, for example, PTSD, substance abuse, and depression. And those factors are also associated with elevated rates of suicide. So we're very concerned about them. We know that recent reports indicate that National Guards have some of the highest suicide rates in DOD um, and that reserve rates are also higher. We need this work because women in reserve and National Guard are two of the fastest growing VA populations. And yet, despite that, we know most post 9-11 women are not using the VA for their health care and women who are not using the VA for their health care have increased risk of suicide relative to women who do are engaged in the VA. Yeah, so, so a couple of questions from what you just talked about. Um, mm -hmm. So the first one, are, are, are suicide rates in women veterans more or less than the male population? There are more males so that there are more men who have more men committing suicide just because of the vast yeah, ratio the vast difference, but difference in men to women. Um, I, I can send you the suicide rates. The reason I didn't report them is because they are percentages per 100,000. They're um, really not user-friendly yeah. for women, but I've got a suicide you know, rate. Sure. Um, I think the bigger concern in terms of male versus female if we look at male suicides, male rates after their discharge from military decline in the first seven years after military service, but rates of female suicide remain the same. So something is different about uh, the ways that women's risk are um, unique for suicide. We also know that from 2005 to 2015, there have been an increase in risk of suicide and rates of suicide in women veterans. 
um, of great concern is 41% of female veteran suicide deaths are from firearm injuries. Um, and those using firearms are um, more likely to die on their first attempt. Um, we know that firearm owners and access to firearms is associated with an increased suicide risk um, in both civilian and in veteran populations. So um, what, what do you think is going on in the female population, veteran population? Um, you, you mentioned something very interesting that, that female veterans who don't seek care at the VA have higher rates than those that do. Well, why do you think that disparity exists? One of the questions and, and one of the reasons we're particularly interested in reserve and National Guard is not only do they seem to have higher rates of mental health and physical consequences um, after deployment, but they also are embedded in communities and had community providers prior to their deployment. And suddenly they're eligible for VA because of their deployment services or because they have served in the Reserve and National Guard um, and then um, return back to their home communities. Um, sometimes it's called the Iraq to cul-de-sac phenomenon. So they go from a military environment in which they have a peer group who's kind of sort of aware of the experiences they have during deployment and when they're activated to having a community that may or may not understand all of the experiences that they've had or traumas. And so there are less eyes on them. And um, it is um, possibly that isolation and concern about telling people about their experiences drives um, isolation and isolation, social isolation has been demonstrated to be associated with an increased risk of suicide. Reserve and National Guard in particular, um, because of their unique fringes of care experiences and moving between VA, DOD, and community providers can have fragmented care or dual use. And when you have fragmented care, that continuity of somebody having eyes on and that continuity of a good relationship can be fragmented. And so we also worry about Reserve and National Guard who move between multiple care systems and care coordination is so important. And that's why the VA has really um, tried to increase care coordination. Um, also, the VA is very well trained to assess for trauma and all of the comorbidities that um, people who have experienced during deployment or in military, such as military sexual trauma, such as TBI, um, such as um, hazing harassment, merely the fact that you're isolated from your family in deployment uh, and your jobs are disrupted and your family life is disrupted uh, and your kids may have to choose to live with another family member while you're deployed if you're a single parent. Those kinds of things really weigh on anyone understandably. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of concerns when they're readjusting home um, also influence. So if they come into a VA setting, the VA practitioner is very familiar with these kinds of things. It's also possible that people who choose not to come to the VA are um, more likely to have PTSD and be avoidant of talking about traumas and not talking about experiences and getting care that they need. 
again, um, people who um, uh, approximately one in three people who've been deployed say they've had a traumatic experience, um, and yet the majority aren't seeking needed mental health care or talking with anybody about that experience. Um, let me think about it. The other things that uh, we talk about or are concerned about um, with Reserve and National Guard in particular is the dual employment because they have regular day jobs and then they're weekend warriors. Yeah. And so they have to juggle those types of things. We're also concerned because when they're deployed, they also have to come back to a job or marketplace or workplace in which um, somebody else has been doing their job and then they have to reintegrate back into that job um, after being recently deployed. So their transition time home is pretty intense. Yeah. Um, also, they're having to readjust back to families and family responsibilities with a partner um, who has been taking care of everything while they've been gone. And so they have to renegotiate those roles. So those can be very stressful. Um, hey, uh, oh, yeah, so go ahead. I had a question. So what, kind of, what struck me was one in three uh, veterans having a traumatic experience, but drastically lower numbers are coming in for help or seeking help. Mm -hmm. um, but because, you know, the percentage of veterans that have these traumatic experiences and it's lower that they're seeking help, what ways do you see are most common or most effective for kind of bridging that gap saying, hey, maybe I should go see help or um, mm -hmm. go into the VA? Mm -hmm. So what we have been doing with research is we have been trying to um, reach veterans where they live in at a time that's convenient for them. So we have been doing reaching out with online screenings and then educating people. It's really important that um, veterans, we all need to know about possible health conditions and become educated. And so what we have found is that many, many military members and veterans feel that there's a stigma about mental health. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want seeking mental health care to affect their military service, their deployability, um, their security clearance, and so they're reluctant to seek care. There's also a military culture that is a buck up kind of culture. And while the military has been attempting to make seeking care permissible, possible, um, seeking post-rape counseling permissible, possible, people report that there are many barriers to actually seeking services particularly when part of the military service involves a kind of a masculine culture where you have a stiff upper lip. In Got terms it. of ways we can bridge, I think that the VA is really attempting through education, we're trying to offer VA-centric care, veteran-centric care, in which we um, understand we provide education to people either online and definitely in person about their possible um, mental health conditions with screening and then see them and discuss them, but helping them be empowered to make decisions um, by being educated about what possible conditions that they have and their treatment options, the pros and cons of each treatment option. So the VA is definitely embracing patient-centered care with shared decision-making in which we're trying to understand their problems, their risk factors, but also what are their preferences for care? So we may see someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, 
and say, gee, these are the treatment options for you and these are other services that we offer, they may say, I'm most distressed about what's going on at home with my kids and my partner. And so what's important is their care priority and we try to offer care according to their need. So providing that veteran-centric care according to their preferences is really vital. So they're in charge. Yeah, absolutely. So one other question I kind of have is, does the VA target care providers at all? So do they target um, family members or do they say, hey, wives or husbands of veterans, this is what you should know? Mm-hmm. Is that we something? Provide, yeah, we provide a lot of psychoeducation for my family members. They're family therapists in the VA system. Um, the VA has been... Um, uh, well, I'm a marital and family therapist. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, uh, the VA has been uh, um, cognizant of the need to include family members for education. And there are a variety of programs, both online and within VAs, that try to reach out and educate families. Um, most of our mental health interviews consider a family member a really important historian and um, interview to help us understand how a veteran is adjusting, even if they're not having um, marital problems or readjustment problems. But so the veteran goes, so the family goes. And so it really is important that everybody in the family knows what's going on and what the treatment options are and what services are available for them as a family as well. That is really interesting. I think, I think that's something that often gets overlooked in veteran care is the, the health and the well-being of the caretaker. We, we really noticed that when we did the kidney, mm-hmm. the kidney transplant uh, interviews is that how much the caretaker is involved or the, the wife right. or the husband or whoever it is, son, daughter, son, et cetera. Yeah, it's right. the, the stress on the family members can be quite, quite um, heavy as well. And I think that's an important thing to understand in these situations. But I really want to come back around to, um, you started to talk about, I'm not sure how to describe what you were talking about. You were said that most suicide uh, attempts are preventable or are preventable? Well, I, th- I think that a suicide is a preventable tragedy. And I think that it's preventable by clinicians screening and talking with people openly and encouraging people to get help. I think it, the issue of people talking about feeling uh, like ending their life or talking about find, seeing no solutions to problems at hand um, should trigger family members or providers or community members or coworkers to say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about this and let's get you some help. And the VA has done an important job of reaching out and having hotlines and making sure that veterans know these hotlines um, or reach out to someone who they're comfortable with or trust. The issue is, is for socially isolated veterans, knowing that we're there and that they can call someone 24 seven. What we're finding is that um, it isn't just people with mental health problems or trauma that commit suicide. It's people who've had traumatic experiences or have had an adverse life event and don't see a solution. And uh, that's tragic that they have a permanent solution of suicide for a fixable problem and a transient problem. So what we like to do is get people in and be a safety net for them and try to help them. Great. Um, um, two two okay. last questions for you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the last research-based question I really want to ask you, why do you think it's important for the VA to invest in this type of research? What does it give us when we invest in epidemiological uh, research concerning suicide and these types of things in veterans? Well, we have a constantly changing veteran population. In the last decade, our veteran population has dramatically altered in terms of younger veterans, repeated combat exposures and deployments, more women, more minorities joining. So it's important to have evidence-based treatment. And if we have a population that we don't understand what their risk factors are when we're having elevated rates of suicide, then we're not providing evidence-based medicine. We're, this isn't science. We're just doing the best we can. And really effective treatment is treatment that's tailored to each individual's needs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason. The second reason is we know very little about Reserve and National Guard and very little about suicide rates in women. Most of our research has been done in active component male veterans or military members. And so consequently, there's a disparity in what we know about women versus men and Reserve and National Guard versus active component. And so this research is trying to help us understand if they have unique risk, which we wonder that they do. And we already know that rural women and men have higher rates of suicide than non-veterans. So we wanna understand how that affects veterans. We know that rural populations have higher rates of firearm injuries and suicide and because they are more likely to have guns. If suicide rates are elevating um, in veterans, we want to understand in with this research in particular is uh, how should we best address firearm suicide risk with women veterans? There's almost no research done in that. Our, some of our research has shown that women who are returning from deployment are more likely than women not deployed to have a firearm in their home and patrol their home for safety after their deployment. So we know there's a population of women who are using guns in their household, then they have elevated risk. So again, if we can understand that better and understand their unique suicide risk, then we can try to address it. We're talking to veterans to understand what, how they think that we should ask them about suicide and what they think that we should do um, to better mitigate that risk, for example, with firearm safety or other factors. And so this research is important because we have to engage our veterans to guide us with what they want. We're also talking with providers who work with Reserve and National Guard, be it DOD, um, VA, and their community providers to talk with them about, with Reserve and National Guard veterans, what have you found works best? Is there something unique about our treatments? Um, Because they are, again, on the front lines of treatment And we may be able to learn something from each of these avenues of providers or types of providers to best optimize our care. Because that's our goal with epidemiological risk is understanding risk factors, the epidemiology of risk, but then understanding what interventions best address those risks. So if I was a veteran, say I'm listening to this this episode in particular, particular, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to share... um, what treatments have either worked for me or I think would work well personally. Is there uh, an outlet that I can reach out to that would help move these studies along? How can a, how can a veteran get involved? Involved in treatment or involved in research? Research, uh, research. 
that's a really good question. So um, you can always contact, since we're working with women with this, you can always contact your closest VA, a Women Veterans Program Manager, and ask them about research at their VA. You can go online to the Women Veterans Research Consortium, um, and um, there are a variety of studies that are indicated there. Um, I will tell you kind of off the record that most of us do random assignments. Um, so we pick community samples of veterans. And so this isn't quite as easy a question as it might be, but it's an important question. Um, the other thing that I, I think is important for veterans to do is the VA has increased the number of what are called veteran engagement panels yeah. in which research is really um, understanding the importance of veterans roles and giving feedback for what they need. So that would be an important thing is to call their VA and ask who's in charge of the veteran engagement panel or if the main hospital operator doesn't know that, call the research department at their VA and ask if there are any research studies or if there are any veterans engagement panels. Veterans in the veteran engagement panel review ideas that researchers have with um, uh, the veteran and to say, is this a great idea? Is this a terrible idea? How can we make this better? How can we make something uh, that works for you? And what else do you think we should be doing? So I'm fortunate because I, as a provider, my patients tell me every session, this is what I need, or why isn't this being offered, or what can you do differently about this? But for researchers who aren't engaged routinely in clinical practice in particular, also it offers a different range, not just a unique person's practice, but a wider range of information um, from um, people with diverse health or no health problems, um, veterans that might be able to have, provide a veteran, a general veteran's perspective. Awesome, Does thank you. Help? I think that would be our last question. Well, actually, Brandon has one more question. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> well, like, kind of like you said, we always want to end on, a, on an upbeat slash uh, uh, hopeful, mm -hmm. hopeful thing. Mm -hmm. What do you like to do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> Fun? What's that? No, fun? What is fun? <laughs> Especially during COVID times. Yeah. I have two golden retrievers, which uh, is you can both relate to as dog people. So um, my golden retrievers and my husband keep me busy on walks. I also kayak in the summer months. It's been impossible during the winter months here, but those are two of the things that I like to do and hike in general. Very cool. Very well, cool. I want to thank you again for coming on the Best First podcast and we really appreciate your time and your uh, work towards treating veterans. That's pretty cool stuff. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.